Talks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal, come hear the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss, and I'm back. I want to offer a huge thank you to Bev Capshaw and Ronnie Elliott for hosting the show the past two Wednesdays in my absence. I greatly appreciate it, and them. My guest today is Dave Dutoy, founder and co-director of the Vervet Monkey Foundation, a 57-acre facility in South Africa dedicated to the rehabilitation and sanctuary of not just vervet monkeys, but other primates who've been orphaned, injured, abused, used in lab testing, or former pets. The foundation cares for some 570 primates, and this is carried out primarily by volunteers, many of whom travel internationally to the facility to help, to study, to support educational efforts, and more. The Burbet Monkey Foundation marked its 25th anniversary last year and has also been the subject of a documentary, The Burbet Forest. We'll hear about the history and evolution of the Burbet Monkey Foundation, including the enormously negative reputation that the monkeys themselves have had to overcome. When I speak with Dave Dutoy in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in the show, I'll speak with Alana Kirschenbaum, program manager of the New Leaf Vegan Mentor Program, a matching service that pairs would-be vegans with an experienced mentor anywhere in the country. Early January, time of new beginnings and New Year's resolutions seems like an ideal time to discuss this new program. Also, on a programming note of a different sort, later today, I'll be filling in for Scott Elliott on the All Souls edition of It's the Music, 2 to 4 p.m. right here on WMNF. Right now, though, let's speak with Dave with the reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dave Tutoy speaking by Skype from South Africa on Talking Hours. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks for having me on your show. Of course, and I guess I should say good afternoon, at least, uh, in South Africa time, right? You're seven hours ahead, so it's five, a little after five there. That's correct. Yeah, we're well in, uh, in the afternoon at the moment. All right, well, so, so far my uh, time change math is holding up well. That's a good sign. So Now, as a recent uh, initiate into the world of vervet monkeys, I'm struck by how complex that world is, from the social hierarchy among their so-called troops to the culturally complicated uh, place that monkeys uh, occupy, very much including when it comes to farming and farmers in South Africa, itself a, a pretty complex topic, and so on. So starting at the remedial level first, what is a vervet monkey, and what are some of the traits that distinguish them? Well, look, it is, a, it is an old world monkey, particularly from the Africa region. Um, so they have been o- around for millions of years um, and quite a common monkey basically out in our, in our area. Um, and they've also basically learned to adapt as, as times have changed. But unfortunately, because they're um, so easy to, to accommodate themselves, they seem to have conflicts with farmers and residents and this type of thing. So 
um, there's a little bit of a problem where that's concerned, and uh, we're trying to um, help with this conflict and get people to understand them a, a little bit more. Yeah, so maybe you could talk a little bit more about how, how the monkeys are viewed in South Africa in terms of the conflict that you just alluded to. Well, unfortunately, they regarded as vermin, um, basically because a lot of the monkeys' land has been taken up for farming and this type of thing, which is a bit of a problem. And um, because of this, now they, they, seem to, they seem to raid crops and everything, um, which is a bit of a problem um, in the area at the moment. So the thing is, a lot of farmers are shooting them and things like this and accusing them of, of sort of destroying their crops, um, and which, as I say, we try and go out and have a look at this and do investigation and try and teach the farming community how to live and work with these animals. Well, I think, I can't remember now if it was something I read or in the film, but I do recall one explanation that you had about what you just said about the farmers complaining about how the, the monkeys, uh, you know, are getting to the crops. And then you, you do do these investigations. And sometimes it turns out there's one piece of fruit that's affected or one very small item. And it seems like the complaints are, are disproportionate to, uh, to the so-called violation. Yeah, unfortunately, this, this seems to be the case, or should I say it's the case in... Uh, 99% of the call-outs that we have. Um, I think, you know, it's kind of a problem with anything. I, I'm sort of like arranging it to, uh, calling it uh, farm rage, the same same kind of scenario as what people get when they're driving a car and, you know, you get all upset with everybody else and you just blame somebody. And I, I think this is sort of the same thing going on in the farming community. They're having a lot of problems, um, either bad prices on the market and all these type of things. And you have a look out and see this monkey enjoying itself out in your field, and uh, you sort of take out this frustration on them. Um, but in all the investigations that we've actually done, the monkeys are eating like a ripe fruit. They're not eating a green fruit. And the farming community basically picks everything green and sends it to the markets green and ripens it along the way. Otherwise, you'd never get um, all these fantastic fruits from all over the world if they actually sent them ripe. They just wouldn't make it at that time. So there's a little bit of controversy over this. Um, and just trying to get people to understand they can't eat the quantities that people are actually claiming they're eating. Well, and also you ran past, uh, I think, another important point, which is that with the complaining, whether it's for a small amount of fruit or whatever crop is affected, that the fact that they typically would be picked when they're green and the monkeys don't eat stuff, that it's at that kind of level of, of ripeness or non-ripeness. So it sounds like they're not only scapegoats, but um, that some of this is a little on the disingenuous side. Yeah, this... Unfortunately, this is the case. So it's, you know, um, and this is also the reason for education. But as you know, the older people get, the less you want to change and the less you want to change your ways. Um, so we're finding it's, it's a lot better to start talking to the children and, and people that will be infected in the future, basically, because it's, you know, really a lot of the work we're doing and a lot of work that people are actually doing looking after the environment, it's it's an investment. You're not, it's not something you do for yourself. You're doing it for uh, the future and the children of the future. Um, so this is the thing. We try and get opportunities to go out to schools and talk to these children, try and show them, educate them, show them what's going on. And hopefully we can also get people involved um, changing the farming practices because farming practices today are very, very detrimental to the environment. Um, nothing is sort of left for the natural wildlife or the natural populations around in the area. We sort of eradicate everything so it looks like a, a, a desert and then plant a monoculture crop, which doesn't provide food throughout the year for, for the um, actual residents that have been lead, lead, living there all 
all the time. So this is a big problem and, and something that has to be, be addressed. Yeah, well, it certainly, as I, I touched on at the beginning, and uh, you just noted, maybe we'll come back and explore it further, but just the topic of farming and, and farmers, for that matter, uh, seem very complex and I guess for some very polarizing. Um, so, yeah, I, I would like to, if we have time, come back to that. Meanwhile, I think we should, I guess, proceed with the monkeys. But So I think the landscape of South Africa, both figurative and literal, may be critical to understanding the, the brevet monkeys, the role that they play there, and how other monkeys figure into all this. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how in certain regions of South Africa, certainly where you are, obviously, and others, encounters with monkeys are hardly uncommon. I mean, they're not just in and around farms, as we've spent a few minutes talking about, but they're kind of everywhere. Um, look, this is certainly the perception people get from these these, these animals. But when we, when we break it down into what was actually going on, uh, you know, we call monkeys, or especially in this area, a troop of monkeys. Now, a troop of monkeys is actually made up of family. Um, we normally generally say about five or six families of, of monkeys to make up a troop. And um, if you break it down and say, okay, how big would a family be? Um, and if you say, okay, a family may be 10 to 15 animals, and then you start multiplying this by five or six, you start getting an idea of how many um, monkeys you should actually have in a troop. Now, we no longer seeing this anymore. We're seeing little patches of about 15 animals, which is what we call a family of animals. So it's actually dying out. It's not a survivable amount of animals. It's not something that could make up a troop. Now, unfortunately, because of the destruction of their habitat around the area, whether by farming or residential or um, whatever the reason is, these anim animals are actually being forced into town uh, because you're finding a lot of the people in the town plant beautiful trees with berries and flowers and all things, which becomes an attractive source. Um, and, uh, you know, you're getting smaller pockets of monkeys coming in so people think there's a lot but in fact there's on the outskirts of this there's, there's actually a little bit of concern uh, that we need to start paying attention to in fact if i follow you their numbers are diminishing it's just that the ones some of the ones that are around uh, some people find a sufficient nuisance that it seems like there's still large numbers that people object to well this this is the thing because as i said as they're being drawn into the towns people seem to see them more often in the town because this is where they scavenging to try and find um, food and things like this. But if you actually go out into the areas where, where you should find them, you're not finding anywhere the numbers that these animals should be in. Even in our, our famous park, Kruger National Park, which is about a hour away from the foundation, you don't see troop sizes of 60, 70, or 100 strong. Um, you're also only finding 15 to 20 little animals. Um, and also, again, sometimes you're finding it in the rest camps where people are supposed to be um, there to enjoy animals, but they're also objecting to them coming around these areas. But it's just because they're finding an easy source of food. So this is really the problem. In these towns areas, we seem to be seeing a lot more. But as you actually walk out to where their habitat should be, um, you're not finding the supporting numbers of animals that, that, that are required to keep the populations going. And Dave, is that diminished population primarily because of the shift in habitat, or are there some other key factors as well? Well, look, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of factors that go on, but habitat destruction is, is probably the, the biggest cause because, you know, they really need to eat a lot of berries and fruit and trees, which, which we're taking out and replacing it with, um, with crops, um, basically, to feed animals and, and people and, and not 
you know, I always used to say, depending on what kind of person you are, you, you should have always left 10% or the 10% should at least be donated to something. And if people only left 10% of their land in a natural state, they probably would have enough corridors to actually provide food for some of the wildlife and places for these animals to live and hide and, and things like that. But um, unfortunately, that's not the case. And so I guess as this is happening, again, back to the farmers being bothered, impatient, whatever, with the, the monkeys who may or may not be doing as much damage as the, the farmers seem to be uh, claiming. But it sounds like some of that and the way they're responding, including, I guess, uh, in some cases, killing the monkeys that they find intrusive. The product of that, among other things, is that a number of orphaned vervets end up at the foundation. Yeah, this this is uh, a big thing and something that we're very heavily <clears throat> involved in. Um, these monkeys sort of have a, a mating and a birthing period. And sort of the birthing period, unfortunately, starts around October, um, which coincides a lot with our holiday season and going into the Christmas or festive season of the year. And um, of course, a lot of these little animals get orphaned in this period of time and then people keep them to play with them. Uh, which, as I say, is not always a good idea because a lot of them don't survive um, and things. And we've got a lot of people coming into the farming areas because it's, it's sort of like an area where holiday makers could come because of the nature and things like that. And, of course, a lot of these pe- end up in the wrong people's hands and we, we start getting an influx yeah. uh, of animals, um, which is also a problem. Also, the good crops start growing. We get mangoes and lychees or lychees, depending on how you say it. Right. And, of course, these are favorite food of, of, of the monkeys. So, yeah, they're getting penalized for that. Well, let me know folks know this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Dave Dutoy, founder and co-director of the Vervet Monkey Foundation, which has been around for some 25 years and cares for more than 570 primates. If you'd like to ask Dave a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So, on a related note, a year or two ago, there was a document film made chiefly about the the Vervet Monkey Foundation called the Vervet Forest, which I found fascinating and illuminating in all kinds of ways, including from watching the film, it would seem that indeed a big focus of the foundation is caring for these orphaned baby monkeys. So I think we've kind of talked about at least one of the main ways that those monkeys end up orphaned, but there's clearly a very specific protocol in place for how these orphaned babies are cared for. Can you walk us through through that protocol? Um, certainly. Look, we are what we call a hands-off organization. So we're not an organization that actually believes in um, humanizing animals or getting people to actually play with these animals because that's really not, not the whole aspect. So our biggest thing is to try and get these little baby orphans back to mother monkeys as soon as uh, soon as possible. And um, one of our other di- co-directors, um, Josie, she actually came up with a, with a nice concept uh, of a feeding scheme for these little animals where we could actually um, teach them to feed themselves and really get them over to a mother monkey as soon as possible. So we can get a little baby to an orphan to a a mother within a a month to two months time um, and then get a a monkey to start looking after them. So our basic program starts off with like a little orphan normally about two or three weeks of age that comes in and um, we'll have volunteers involved then teaching this little character to start drinking 
and learning how to feed itself from a specially developed feeding cage. Once it's actually learned how to feed itself, uh, we take it over to introduce it to the other monkey. And uh, these monkeys, sort of a mother, will choose this one and eventually we introduce a little baby and the mother. And then the mother monkey takes over and she starts looking after it from there. So it is kind of a, a, a intricate little process of doing uh, of doing it, but it works very, very well. Um, and it's a very, very successful program. Yeah, it sure seems like it. And what's interesting, among other things, I thought is that Often in animal welfare, when we talk about fostering, we mean a human looking after an animal for a period of time until it's either more developed and or can be placed in a so-called forever home. But in the realm of these monkeys, the orphan babies are actually fostered by other monkeys. And uh, I find that really interesting. And I don't know how unusual that is in species-wide or whatever, but it seems quite notable that, again, and you guys have developed a protocol and, and know kind of the right timetable. But just the idea that at a certain point, these babies can be introduced to adults who they otherwise don't have, near as I can tell at least, a particular connection to and those adults sometimes after a little back and forth or moving around whatever uh take over caring for for these uh, orphan babies. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is really remarkable and something fantastic to see and actually experience. Um, and it is really a nice a nice concept. I think sometimes, you know, we just don't open up ourselves to realize that animals are probably more caring than what we are. And uh, a lot of times they got a lot of respect um, for little babies or little baby animals. In fact, a lot of times little babies are marked in a way that adults know they like little learners and you're not allowed to do anything till until the certain age so um, especially in primates I mean primates we all primates basically we fall under the same ca- kind of category um, the caring and nurturing nature is basically there with them um, so it does make it a little bit easier but as I say you still have to have the human aspect uh, I mean little, every little animal has to you know first be reassured and made sure um, it's comfortable and you know sometimes they, ex- they experience extreme losses and um, the same as what we do go into heavy depression and things like this and and it's it's a case of trying to work this depression and whatever traumas they've suffered post naturally getting them out of it and showing them that you know they have got a second chance um and there is something more to life after that and then you know once the human aspect is as catered for that side um we can sort of get them back to an animal which which is really great and a, a fantastic thing to experience how dave i guess in some ways you're saying this is sort of natural tendency of, of monkeys but um how did that dynamic the, in other words the older monkeys willingness to care for the younger monkeys that they're otherwise unrelated to how did that first make itself known to to you and the others at the sanctuary? Look, it's something that's that's been known to many people for many years. It's, it's not really unique to the sanctuary. The problem, the whole problem with this thing is like any monkey will take a baby under a certain age. Uh, the problem is the milk aspect because a little baby monkey has to be given milk for at least a year of its life. So though a mother would take it, there was no way of this little guy getting sustenance and eventually they would dehydrate and die. Yeah. Um, so that is that is really the problem. So the uniqueness in this program is basically teaching such a young little animal to be able to feed itself. So what happens is it climbs off the mother monkey when it's hungry and goes into a specially adapted feeding cage and feeds itself. And once it's full, it comes out of the cage and climbs back on the mom. So um, as easy as it sounds, it is kind of complicated and something Josie spent a lot of time working and, and, and getting it right with the cages and the feeding and stuff like this. And uh, it's worked out worked out very, very well. And uh, it's quite amazing to see this little guys, even after we've got very big um, natural enclosures that are about a, a hectare or two hectares, I don't know, in the acre size, it's probably about four or five acres in size that these animals live in. 
and you see this little guy climbing off its mom, come running over to this little cage, goes in the, the entrance, drinks its milk, and of course, once it's finished, it's back to mom. She's hugging it and taking it back up in the trees. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, as I was watching this, especially as depicted in the documentary, I thought, I have so many questions for the various monkeys involved in this. In terms of, I mean, I know so many things, as with all kinds of animals, are instinctive. But some of what was going on, both with the uh, sort of adoptive or foster mothers, as well as with the babies, seems just remarkable in terms of what they do and, and how they know or figure out what to do. And uh, I guess, like you say, it's not what well, wasn't necessarily suggesting it was unique to the sanctuary, but it just seems, you know, if you haven't witnessed it before, it just seems so striking. Yeah, Duncan, I think sometimes, you know, it's, it's more um, ourselves that hold ourselves back from doing things because it's not something we always expect. Um, and, you know, we, we have a look at these primates and think, oh, they're just an animal. There's, there's, there's no kind of feeling or love or relationship basically there. But, you know, when you get involved with them and you're working very, very closely, you, you actually can see the similarities. And, um, you know, look, they, they're so similar, it's actually scary in some instances. They might not quite have the intelligence, although sometimes a lot of people say they're probably a lot more intelligent than we are. But, you know, they even if they lose a little young one, they mourn and cry and, and carry like their little lost baby for days. So, you know, they've got all these kind of things. Even when they hear a foreign little baby screaming or in distress or giving a distressed call, the whole troop is concerned, uh, which the same you'd think your own community that you're living in. You know, if some child screamed in your com community, you'd probably be all concerned and go out and have a look uh, and try and see where you can help. And these sort of aspects um, follow through in, in, in most of the I should say old world primates because I'm not um, too up to date with the new world primates, which are slightly different. But the old world primates, they certainly seem to have a have a good caring aspect to everything. Again, it's uh, just something to behold. A couple questions that brings me to. One is that where and how at this point could people listening who might be interested get access to the documentary? Is there a certain place to go to see it or sign up for it? Or how could people, if they've become interested in what we've discussed so far, how could they see uh, the Brevet Forest? Um, look, they're different is the best way to get more information is possibly to go to our YouTube channel um, under the Burbot Monkey. Um, I don't know what's the best if I should post you the link if it's easier for you to read it out. Um, also on Instagram, you can get a lot of in information there. And um, then you can get as um, access to being able to see the Burbot Forest and seeing how that's, you know, how one can go out and see it. Yeah. Well, I should at least say right now for various reasons, including that, that the website, the overall organization's website is vervet, V-E-R-V-E-T, Dot za dot org. And so there's all kinds of great information and, and I think probably access and links to some of the social media things, including the YouTube channel and, and the Instagram, I, I, as I recall. So, Dave, here's the, uh, another question, though, about what we're talking about in terms of the way that these babies are embraced by these uh, uh, adoptive or foster moms. Apart from the farmers who we've discussed get irritated and sometimes that irritation gets so extreme that they do kill some uh, vervet monkeys and therefore leave some babies behind. Orphan. What are some of the other causes of some of these monkeys ending up being orphaned? Um, look, also the, the next biggest problem that we've got is road traffic accidents, of course, because, you know, as population grows, there's a lot more vehicles on the road. We get a lot of these little animals being hit on the road. Also, unfortunately, again, coming at the wrong time of the year, um, not because of them, just because of design, is over the Christmas period where you've got a lot more traffic on the, on the roads. And the mothers that are now pregnant or carrying a, a little baby are a lot slower. And uh, unfortunately, I'm tending to find people aren't as caring as what they should be. You know, we don't we don't slow down. Um, so if we see animals on the road, we expect them to just get out the way. We might try hoot. Some people just 
try to speed up. Instead of taking that couple of seconds to just slow slow down a little bit and um, let these guys cross the road. You know, five seconds in your life could mean a, a complete lifetime uh, for another animal. So road accidents is a very big problem. Another thing that we have is overhead power lines, which these animals don't seem to understand and get themselves electrocuted and things like that. Um, so these are the other, um, the other two main aspects that we, that we have to face at the moment. One of our emailers, hadn't occurred to me, but one of our emailers asked if the monkeys are ever caught or otherwise used for food themselves. Um, they would be in certain areas, not so much in, in South Africa, but yes, they do form part of the bushmeat trade. Um, it's not a common animal out here to eat, but in, we do get about six different species of vervet monkeys throughout the whole of Africa. And uh, in some parts of Africa, they are, are definitely eaten. I see. So, Dave, can you chart any sort of change or evolution in how the vervet monkey is viewed over the quarter century that the foundation has been around? In other words, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that they were um, considered vermin, and maybe there's no change in that perception. I'm just wondering, with your various educational efforts and just over time, has there been a difference in how at least the average person there, let's say, might look at vervet monkeys? You know, these, these are all things that are, are very hard to measure. Um, yeah. And whether your educational programs are having having an aspect or, or, or influence on anything, or if it's just people in general, you know, I I think the new generation of, of people coming through are, are generally being a little bit more compassionate and understanding, just because there's a lot of environmental information being pushed on people. Um, so people are becoming a lot more aware. You know, the older generation, or from my generation, we didn't have all of these all of these things, and we didn't seem to be worried too much. Where it's starting to become on the forefront. So whether this is something from our educational programs or whether it's it's a general thing coming through, I do think there's slowly becoming a change and a difference. Um, I'm definitely seeing a lot a lot more um, people switching over to better diets that are more environmentally conscious and this type of thing, mm-hmm. which is a great thing to see. Uh, you know, a lot of people are starting to think of different ways of farming, to starting to feed the greater number of humans. Um, if only we'd rapidly get into something to decrease the amount of humans, would probably be a far better idea. But yeah, I think these things are coming. And again, we said we might come back to this, so maybe this is a natural point to do that. But it does seem, as the film kind of makes clear, that the issue of farming in South Africa is, is uh, enormous complex. There's a number of people that are speaking in the film from different vantage points about sort of weird like timber things planted with with no kind of uh, other virtues to them and just a lot of sort of interesting, if that's the right word, choices made that have serious impact on the food production and what's the future of at least those areas of South Africa holds. Can you just elaborate at all on your views on farming there and or farmers? Certainly. Look, the trouble is, you know, we, uh, I suppose it's a very, very difficult industry and, and everything comes down down to money. And, you know, when you start measuring how much each fruit or each tree or everything costs you, this becomes a very, very difficult thing to lose because you're measuring loss by losing one item. Whereas farming isn't just one item, you're actually farming a big crop that's actually in tons. So, you know, if you take it down to a minuscule little amount, it it can seem terrible. Um, When you take it to large amounts, the amount that's actually being produced and stuff like this, losses are basically to a minimal. But when it comes to any kind of farming practice or anything, there's no, you know, Farmers started off there when there was an abundance of land. There's abundance of um, natural areas that you could go out and exploit and things like that. But this is, 
you know, sort of becoming less and less as, as the years go by. And we're not adapting ourselves to actually accommodate this or, or work in this kind of environment. So we're destroying bigger, bigger areas and not leaving anything to actually rehabilitate itself or regenerate areas that are, are essential, not just for the survival of animals, but the survival of man man itself. Um, you know, we, we do need natural areas basically for recreation, to get out to, uh, just to revitalize ourselves. This, this is a very important thing. And it's not always something that's that's considered by everybody. It does seem really complicated, as I heard more and more people address it from different angles in the film, and that there's some serious concerns about what kind of food and what, how sufficient the amount is that will be produced based on some of these very challenges. Look, this is this is definitely the thing. I, I, you know, we're hoping people are going to move away, um, especially like things like cattle farming and, and, and stuff like this, which is a very unproductive way of, of trying to um, feed the masses. Um, and even when we do um, programs to teach up-and-coming new farmers, um, you know, to teach them different ways or, or different crops to basically farm that are a lot more efficient and the ways of planting crops so that you're just not planting a most Culture, you've got a variety of things that are actually producing throughout the area um, that can feed a lot more people, and it's it's a lot a lot healthier way of basically farming. But uh, you know that's that's some of the other aspects of the other people that are, are have been speaking in the in the video or in the film. Um, me, unfortunately, I deal just with the with the animal aspect and, and and trying to bring the awareness of that side across to people how essential they are because even these animals play a role in the farming community. They eat a lot of the bugs and stuff like this on the trees. They control insect populations, which is very, very important. And we're sort of finding as they eradicate not just vervet monkeys, but other wildlife as well, you're getting the increase of certain pests or what we define as pest animals, which become more destructive to the crop, therefore using more poisons to spray, uh, you know, which goes into this complete role uh, of causing a problem for everybody at the end of the day. Yeah, no, that it does seem like there's a number of things discussed like, like that that are changing reactions to uh, making a change or not making a change and then having various kind of consequences kick in although I, I still can't quite get over that part where there was a a patch of land where they just, I guess, were interested in, in timber or wood, and what had been there before or what could have been there um, was all but neglected in the in the service of just growing those those particular trees. Look, this is this is definitely the thing. I mean, you know, we all need we all need certain commodities and stuff um, really to live, and I think this is the biggest aspect. We just we're just not controlling it and having a look at different products that might be a lot more sustainable um, and a lot more environmentally friendly in the end of the day. And this is something we have to pay attention to very, very quickly because uh, we certainly are running out of land at a fast rate and not just land, water as well. Because a lot of these these forestry trees and stuff that we plant drink a phenomenal amount of water. And uh, it's become the biggest concern even in South Africa. We're sitting in a, a semi-drought at the moment. People probably heard on the news about Cape Town that ran out of water. Um, this is becoming a general trend which we, we, a couple of years ago, we never thought this would happen. So we, we really have to start having a look at the aspects and what's actually taking most of our, our water. Forestry is a big thing. And of course, a lot of the stuff we export. So you're actually exporting your water that's essential essential for the country in the end of the day. Yeah. And so I guess in some ways I, I want to come back and we're in our final moments here, Dave. But we talked about sort of whether the perception of vervets had, had shifted much from when they had been really considered vermin. And another 
sort of related thing that comes up in the film is where Josie's talking about a public perception survey in which the findings suggested that 90%, I guess, of the respondents believe that monkeys are associated with witchcraft. Now, I mean, how do you work against that sort of perception? Yeah, you, you do have a lot of challenges in all kinds of things that, that you, you really work with. And uh, yeah, the witchcraft thing is, is quite a terrible thing. In fact, in South Africa, it's illegal to call somebody a witch because witches still get killed here. Um, and I'm not too sure where this came from, whether it was um, from, um, you know, forefathers trying to protect wildlife in their own kind of way and saying, oh, you better leave those monkeys alone because they, you know, associated with witches and this thing just um, sort of snowballed into something that people got scared and starting to kill them. We can't really find the true source of it, but most of pe- most people that we speak to are adamant that it's associated with witches and witchcraft. Now, the problem with this is if a, a monkey goes into a village, um, either the person's house that it gets that the monkey's found on gets accused of being a witch and they could actually get burnt or killed, um, or otherwise people start stoning the monkey. And uh, sometimes these animals go through a terrible death. We had uh, one a couple of years ago where they actually managed to throw stones and knock it out of a tree and then threw, threw it into a tub of burning petrol, um, which, which is really horrendous, you know, and yeah. And to think people are still thinking this way is, is a very difficult thing to come to terms with. So, yeah, we, you know, it is essential to try and get education out there and, and show people these, this, this isn't quite true. We try to get some of the younger children from the um, struggling communities and things like this to come out and, and visit the sanctuary and seeing that these, what these animals are, are, are like. But even then, one's got to be very, very careful with what they see and what they interpret. Um, we had a little movie that I had going out where there was a monkey that... Uh, tiny little baby that just happened to pick up a pen and they interpreted that this monkey was going to start writing but um, mm. you know it, it wasn't the case it was just the monkey was interested in the little pen was about to chew it so yeah. this is a problem you've got to be very careful of how you come across and what images people see um, because sometimes it could bring the, the, the wrong the wrong story across in the end yeah. of the day but you know I guess there's just any number of interpretations that could happen at any given moment depending on what they see that monkey doing. So this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Dave Dutoy, founder and co-director of the Vervet Monkey Foundation in South Africa, where he's speaking to us via Skype. We're just in our last moment or two. If you do have a question or comment before we wrap up with Dave, 813-239-9663, or you could email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So a critical component of the Vervet Monkey Foundation clearly seems to be the ongoing battalion of volunteers who assist the operation in all sorts of ways, and many seem to travel internationally to the sanctuary. Can you talk a little bit about how that works and what those experiences are like for people who do travel specifically to volunteer at the sanctuary? Certainly. Well, these these are actually the last the lifeblood of the foundation and, and in actual fact they're the people that really have to be thanked the most because it's them that actually makes this type of thing possible and you are getting a lot of fantastic people out there um, instead of going on a normal holiday they're going out on what we call working holidays and getting involved in trying to to make a difference in the wildlife and people's lives and education and this type of thing and and we're very fortunate to be able to have a program um, that incorporates volunteers and what happens we'll get international volunteers that either come anything from a month um, up to I mean three six months some of them are staying here even up to three years um, and they get involved in actually working with these animals 
going out and doing education programs, looking after the little youngsters, and also learning how to run a run a sanctuary and look after a sanctuary. So, you know, it's, it's sort of them that keeps the, the sanctuary game because, as you know, we are a charitable organization and a non-government-funded organization. So you have to sort of find ways um, to keep these, these places going. So, yeah. yes, the volunteers are sort of the backbone and play a very, very important role um, and, and something that we're very, very grateful for, for having and, and basically being able to meet such fantastic people that are out there. You actually don't realize how many great people are out there willing to help and get involved and, and wanting to make a difference. Well, in terms of responding to one of the social media posts I put up in the recent days that, that you and I would be speaking, one commenter uh, noted that she had volunteered there and just obviously loved the experience and loved you guys there and just uh, it sounded like it was just sort of a magical experience. And I gather there's other that feel the same way, especially if they're staying six months or, or multiple years even. That's uh, That says a lot about what it's like to help out there and, and, and how they're treated and what kind of experiences they're having. So, so Dave, we have just about reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Dave Tutoy of the Vervet Monkey Foundation. And again, the film to try to track that down or via their YouTube channel, whatever, is the Vervet Forest. And the overall website is Vervet, V-E-R-V-E-T again, dot Z-A dot org. And there's all kinds of social media presence, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, etc. So you can find out uh, through the website or otherwise by searching those uh, platforms to find out more about what Dave and I were talking about and ways you could help out or get involved if you were so inclined. So Dave, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. I really appreciate it. Oh, I want to say a big thank you to you, Duncan, and your team uh, for allowing us this opportunity um, basically to speak on your program. Um, Although a bit, a bit nervous, um, because it's not something I'm, I'm used to doing. You know, animal people, we're used to working with animals most of our time. We're not really confronted um, speaking to the public all the time. So it is something different for us. But thanks very much for having us and, and giving us this opportunity. No, I really appreciate it and uh, thought it went well. And we'll uh, continue to track your, uh, your progress. And again, you're obviously doing great work and have been for a quarter of a century or more. So thanks again, Dave. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. In a few moments, I'll speak with Ilana Kirschenbaum of the New Leaf Vegan Mentor Program, which pairs new and aspiring vegans with an experienced mentor who can provide guidance and support. And uh, quickly want to update you on a uh, traffic piece of news, the emergency lane closure on Courtney Campbell Causeway. The right lane is closed on eastbound State Road 60, Courtney Campbell Causeway, approaching Benty Davis Beach Road. Due to emergency roadway repairs, the lane is expected to be reopened this morning within the hour. Expect slow traffic on eastbound State Road 60 between Clearwater and Tampa if you're traveling that path. Right now, though, it's uh, time to step into the comedy corner. Hard to go wrong with John Mulaney. This is part of a piece called Baby Grandma from John Mulaney in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. My wife and I don't have any children. We have a dog. We have a little puppy named Petunia. She's a tiny little French bulldog puppy. I like having a puppy that's a bulldog because it's like having a baby that is also a grandma. Her... Her body is young, her face is as old as time. She definitely saw the Nazis march into Paris. She always gives me this look of like, oh, the things I have seen. You have no idea. The Gestapo threw my printing press into a river, but go tell your jokes. Bring me my dish. She said that. Petunia. Petunia is my best friend in the world. I give her a million kisses a day. She does not like me and barks at me and bites me all day long. 
We had to get a dog trainer into the apartment because Petunia is a bad dog. We tell her that every day. We go, hey, you're bad at being a dog. So the trainer came into the apartment. Sorry, didn't even walk into the apartment. Walked into the threshold and went, oh, okay. <laughs> like she was an exorcist or something. She said, I see what the problem is. She said, Petunia has become the alpha of the house. And then she pointed at me. She said, you are no longer the alpha of the house. And in the back of my head, I was like, I was never the alpha of the house. I turned to my wife. I was like, let's pretend it'll be fun. Yes, I oh my title of alpha, which I once had. How could I reclaim it? Because that was a thing that existed at one time. She said, you need to show dominance over your puppy. These are things people say to me. I said, how do I do that? She said, well, let me ask you this. Who eats dinner first, you or Petunia? I was like, Petunia eats dinner first. She eats dinner at 5 p.m. because she's a foot long and two years old. She said, no, you need to eat dinner first because the king eats before anyone else eats. Oh, yes. And what a mighty king I will be eating dinner at 4.45 in the afternoon. Ah, ha, ha, ha! Look upon your sovereign, Petunia, and tremble. My lands stretch across this entire one bedroom, and I eat dinner whenever I choose, as long as it works for the schedule of a dog. She said, no, you don't actually have to eat dinner before Petunia. You just have to convince Petunia that you've already eaten. So, for the past month, before my wife and I give Petunia her dish, we take down empty bowls and spoons, and in front of her we go, mmm, dinner, mmm, good dinner. Like we're space aliens in a play about human beings that they wrote but they didn't work that hard on. Mmm, we're eating dinner. Meanwhile, Petunia's just staring at us with her Paul Giamatti face like, You're not eating dinner. Dish now. That was John Mulaney with a piece called Baby Grandma, taken from his CD, The Comeback Kid. Now it's time to speak of the Lana Kirschenbaum about this recently launched newly vegan mentor program. This indeed is Ilana Kirschenbaum on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Alana. Good morning, Duncan. So nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So let's start by uh, asking, what was the impetus for launching this program? Well, you know, everywhere we turn nowadays, we see celebrities becoming vegan. We see products exploding on the supermarket shelves that are vegan and not causing animal suffering. And we, there's tons of media attention in major outlets like The Economist, which just forecasted 2019 as the years of vegan. But we know that, you know, some people need some help along the way when they want to become vegan. They don't know what to eat. They don't know what to buy, what products are good, what to do when family or friends are not supportive. And we have this program that helps people every step along the way with trained vegan mentors. And so what we know from our research is that one-on-one mentoring is shown by research to help people create long-lasting behavior change. And so we wanted to create a program that surpassed any other vegan mentor program out there in the world today. And we already have applicants from over 20 countries, and we've only been 
launched since two months ago. So, well, almost three months ago. But so we're super excited. Well, something you just said there kind of reminded me. I was curious. I feel like there are uh, other programs with similar intentions. How would you say the the New Leaf uh, program is different? Well, one of the things that makes our program really stand out from any other program out there is a premier software platform that's designed for mentoring that we acquired. And we did that because this platform, similar to a dating site for any listeners out there who've been um, doing online dating at any time in their life. Yeah. Um, it's a very powerful platform and people that apply create personalized profiles uh, that tell one another about themselves and the mentees share their goals. Mentors talk about their experience and what they can offer a mentee. And then people get matched together based on what their um, particular interests are if they're looking for someone that lives near them. And so there's personalized matching that happens. And there's lots of features that this platform offers so that we can, people can communicate one another within the platform or outside of the platform, and we can really understand our outcomes and measure our progress and do the program evaluation that we need to do. And the platform allows us to scale, to be really large and reach people all around the world. So this raises a, your sort of parallel to uh, dating sites, raise a question. So let's say someone says, okay, I want to do this uh, part of my uh, 2019 uh, is to uh, go vegan and I thought I would need some help and this sounds like a cool way to get it. So you fill out your profile and then is it similar to uh, the way a dating platform would work? Well, that you might get four or five or more uh, potential mentors and then you kind of go from there to to sort of zero in on the one that will be your ongoing mentor? Exactly. Yeah. Mentees. It's really the mentee's decision who they want to work with. Mm -hmm. So once they complete their profile, uh, the platform has this matching algorithm and it'll give them um, the most compatible matches based on what the information they provided in their profile. If they want to continue looking and searching by different criteria, there's lots of opportunities to do that. Um, or they can, you know, once they decide on a mentor they want to work with, they simply reach out to them through the platform. And, you know, we also, it, the program also has a convenient cell phone app. So, um, you know, if people don't want to use a laptop or a tablet, they want to use their cell phone, they can use the program that way as well. So it's, it's very convenient. Cool. So we're almost uh, at the end of our time here, Alana. But so how would someone find out more and or sign up if they were so inclined to get involved with the New Leaf Vegan Mentor Program? Sure. Well, we're welcoming mentors from around the world. and It's a wonderful opportunity to gain new vegan advocacy skills and make a difference in someone's life and help animals in the earth. And we're welcoming mentees as well. So you simply go to our website at newleafvegans.org and we have plenty of information and you can sign up there. Great. Sounds simple enough. And uh, so both as mentors or a mentee, you can go there and if you want to get involved with the program, correct? Yes. Great. Yes. Okay, well, Love thanks so much. Yeah, no, this sounds really cool, and it sounds like uh, it's going to be uh, very effective. And again, a great time of the year for a lot of people m- thinking about making those very changes. So, Alana, thanks yeah. so much for uh, joining us today and telling us all about the New Leaf Vegan Mentor Program. Good luck. Thank you so much, Duncan. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Coming up at 11 on WNF, it's Rob Lorai and Radioactivity kicking off a three-hour block of interviews, phone calls, news, and more, including the noon hour midpoint with Nola Lalay. Then at 1 p.m., John Gilmore presides over executive session. Then the music kicks back in at 2 p.m. with me, oddly enough, filling in for Scott Elliott today on the All Souls edition of It's the Music. 
Meanwhile, on this show is the prize for Name That Animal Tune. I'll be offering a DVD copy of Blackfish. In fact, let's get into that now. Name That Animal Tune is a giveaway, but please only participate if you haven't won something from WNF in the last 90 days. And there will be a prize again, a DVD copy of Blackfish. To the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. Baby, baby, let me be Your love will take me back Put a chain around my neck And lead me anywhere Let me be Oh, let him be Your teddy bear I don't want to be a tiger Cause tigers play too rough I don't want to be a lion Cause lions ain't the kind you love enough can you name that animal tune? If so, we'll probably take your guess off the air after we wrap up the show because we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Rob Lawyer is up next with Radioactivity. Next week, my guests will be Catherine Michon and Bruce Cameron, the screenwriters of the film A Dog's Way Home, based on Cameron's book of the same name. And the movie opens nationwide on Friday. You've probably have already seen a lot of action, social media, TV, etc. It's going to be a big film with all kinds of cool themes for those of us who care about dogs and breed specific legislation and more so i hope you'll join me for that and i hope you'll visit talkinganimals.net for audio archives and links to social media facebook twitter and more again join me if you can later at 2 p.m today i'll be sitting in for scott on the all souls edition of instant music this is wmnf tampa brandon clearwater largo wiki thanks